All right. Well, good morning, Rockbridge. It's good to have you here with us. My name's J.C. Groves, campus pastor at our Ringgold campus, and we are glad you're here with us today. All over Northwest Georgia and the Tennessee Valley, Calhoun, Chatsworth, Dalton, Hickson, Tennessee, and here in Ringgold. Welcome. We're glad you're here with us today. We are right in the middle of a series today called Habits, Vices, and Sins. Oh, my we're taking a look at the seven deadly sins, if you will, uh, that are listed. And uh, we have already talked two weeks in. Past, our, our lead pastor, Matt Evans, has uh, brought the word the last two weeks with pride. Last week, we took a look at lust. I would highly encourage you to go back and look at those two messages. You can go to rockbridge.cc slash sermons. Rewatch those, especially last week's on lust. If you got a student getting ready to go to prom, have them watch that as a request. All right. I ain't even joking. All right, so um, that, that was last week, and then Pride. This week, we are taking a look at gluttony, and uh, I have had a lot of folks this week, they're like, man, I'm a little nervous about your message today, and I had one small group leader tell me she's going to serve salad with no dressing tonight at small groups. That's a little extreme, but hey, I'm glad you're here with us. Uh, just like you heard Alfred talk about uh, gluttony and a problem uh, with weight. Listen, I, I want you to understand right up front, there are many people who struggle with their weight, and, and gluttony has no uh, result of that. Their weight is not a result of the gluttony that is there. And so I want to beg you this morning at all of our campuses, in this room here in Ringgold and wherever you're watching this, don't play the role of the Holy Spirit. Uh, don't say, oh, I know who needs this message just by looking around. Because you cannot look around a room and see who struggles with the sin of gluttony, nor can you see somebody who is skinny and say they don't deal with the sin of gluttony. So as we take a look at the sin of gluttony today, this is something when Matt asked me to preach that I spoke up and said, I want to talk about this one. Because this has been a sin in my life. This has been a habit it's been a vice, it's been a hang-up, it's been something that I've let control my life for a long time. I got to a place where uh, about eight years ago, it was the day before my oldest son was born, I lost a job, and so I sat at home with a newborn baby, 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. while my wife went back to work. Man, I just started eating. I was depressed, I was eating, I was watching Maury Povich and Days of Our Lives and just putting food down, and I was like, whoo, I'm getting fat. And then my buddy called he used to be with Confederate Railroad, Chris McDaniel, and he said, hey, dude, I know you're sitting at home getting fat. You want to go on the road and make some money? And I was like, yeah. And so there's a Southern gospel group that was needing a lead singer. That'll make you depressed in itself. And uh, so I went, <laughs> I went back out on the road traveling, living in a 45-foot bus, singing every weekend, stopping at fast food and truck stops, and gained about 80 pounds. I mean, I was putting the weight on. And it just got to a place where I was just depressed, and I was like, I can't do anything about it. I got a metabolism that's slower than Congress. I was like, I am never going to be able to lose weight. And this is just part of who I am. And then I got to a place, just like you heard Alfred talk about, where I realized that this is more than just a sin. Uh, this is more than just I like food. This is a sin issue in my life. And it started rolling around about a little over a year ago when I got serious about it. My daughter walks up and, um, you know, having six kids at the house, Peppa Pig is on more than Joel Olstein is at Granny's house. And um, <clears throat> my uh, daughter walks up and she goes, Daddy Pig has a big belly. I was like, oh, little punk, I don't know about that. And I knew it was time when she walks up and she asked me when my baby was due. I was like, that's not how it, it's not how it rolls here, baby. And uh, so we started. We started on a journey. And it's not a journey to look better. It's not a journey just to, it was a journey to realize that it's a vertical issue and that the horizontal issue would take care of itself when I started putting the proper perspective on the sin of gluttony. And so this morning as we jump into this, I, I just want you to know uh, that, that 
to be open to what the Spirit would speak to you. Don't look around and think you know who needs it. Ask Him to speak to you this morning. I want to start just the first place that we can look at is defining gluttony. That'd be a great place to start. The definition of gluttony that I'm going with this morning is that it's an inordinate desire for food. An inordinate desire for food. A few ways to know that you struggle with the sin of gluttony in that you've developed an unhealthy desire towards food is one, you overeat. You just can't push back from the table. You just put it in. You ask anybody that's on staff at Robridge, and they'll tell you, man, JC can throw it down. I I would be the first one to show up for a meeting, and I'm thinking about where we're going to lunch, and it's 8 a.m. They're like, dude, I I was part of this. I would overeat. Second thing, and this you may not think this is part of gluttony, but it is. You only have a taste for expensive foods. There's got to be a standard that your food reaches before it will touch your lips. So let me break it down. You have one that will only eat nine plates at the Golden Corral of that glorious Bourbon Street chicken. Yeah. And then you have some that won't eat leftovers. You see where I'm at? There's a difference there. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with eating expensive food. Where gluttony comes in is when you spend too much on that food that is over excess. There's, a, there's, a, there's nothing wrong with eating out, but last year alone in our country, eating out, we spent some $4 billion. When I think of that, I think, man, that could solve world poverty two or three times over. And that's just because there's a standard there. The third thing is that food has become something to you that it was never intended to be. It has replaced God in our life. We look at food and we use it as a source of comfort. Our boyfriend breaks up with us, we turn to chocolate ice cream and Krispy Kreme donuts. If you're like I was, you would get home at night, you would stress eat. You didn't matter what it was, you were just throwing it down. It didn't matter if 3 a.m. you were having to pop the Zandac because you had acid reflux, you're just going to eat. Here's where it is. Food has become a functional God in your life. Food has become a functional God in your life. And what I mean by that is when it speaks, we obey the urge regardless of the side effects. Now, in our culture, this is a glaring blind spot. Would you agree? I wish we could look at the church and say the church does not struggle with the sin of gluttony. <laughs> Are you kidding me? You ever been to a pastor's conference? It looks like a Dunkin' Donuts support group. It's depressing. I'm like, holy cow, no pun intended. These are preachers. I guarantee you in pulpits all over America today, there's going to be some big old fellas standing up making a joke about their gluttony when we don't treat it as the sin that it is. The sin of gluttony is just like anger, just like pride, just like lust. The sin of gluttony is kind of the unseen sin. It's the forgotten sin, the invisible, the silent sin. We don't really talk about that. And I'm guilty of this. We tend to make jokes about it. It's sin. It's sin, and it's called deadly for a couple reasons. One, it literally could kill you. Literally could kill you. We have so many heart diseases and cardiovascular diseases and diabetes because of the way that we eat poorly. It's literally consuming us. And secondly, food has become a functional God in our life. That makes it just as deadly as any of the other sins that we're talking about Maybe you're here today and you say, well, hey, I'm physically fit, so I don't necessarily need this message. Hold up. Because the same thing that we're talking about today, the problem that we have with gluttony, is that it's just a template for understanding how the human heart works when it comes to these seven deadly sins. And here's the word that all of them have in common. You ready? The word is idolatry. Idolatry. Food stands in the place that God alone is supposed to stand. Food stands in the place that God alone is supposed to stand. 
And what I want us to do in looking at this and how food stands in the place that God is supposed to stand is take a look at two guys. One, that this quote right here proved true in his life. Food was his functional God. When Lord Belly spoke, he obeyed. The other is Jesus, who had a proper relationship with food. So I want to take a look at Esau. Esau is a man who had a bad relationship with food. Just to set the stage a little bit, we'll read this in just a second. He's a twin, Jacob and Esau. They are born. Esau is covered with hair. He's a man's man. He doesn't like the indoors because he likes the outdoors. He smells. He's, he's rude. He's crude. He, he likes meat. I mean, he's just a man's man. Then you have Jacob, who's more of a mama's boy. Jacob likes interior decorating. He likes to create things. Jacob would like to paint. He's like, I like shiplap. You know, that's Jacob, all right? So you got Jacob, you got Esau, two totally different fellas. One day, Esau comes home. He's like, I am starving. Give me something to eat because I'm about to die. How many of y'all are guilty this week? You text your wife, what's for dinner? I'm starving to death. Just me. Okay, so I think there's a lot of Esau in us. So what I want you to understand before we jump into this passage, and this is important, this sets the stage Because Esau is the firstborn, there is what is known as the birthright. The birthright is given to the firstborn. There's a couple things about the birthright I want you to understand. You can write this on the side because this is important. One, the birthright gives the firstborn a double portion. So one of the benefits of being the firstborn is that you get a double portion to the inheritance. So there's financial benefit in being the firstborn. That's number one with the birthright. Number two, you are the judge of the family. So if mom and dad have passed away and there's a disagreement with the brothers and the family and the siblings, you're the judge. You bring them together, you hear their side of the story, and then you get to dictate. There's power with that. And then thirdly, there's a blessing. God is simply going to bless you because you are the firstborn. And so when you hear the birthright, and the end result is that Jacob takes the birthright from Esau. We see that Jacob's people, his ancestors are the Israelite people blessed by God. Esau becomes an ancestor to some of the mortal enemies rejected by God. You could turn on the news and see that fighting still happening today. The birthright is a big thing that Esau gives up, and we read about it here. He comes in and says, I'm starving, and look what it says in Genesis chapter 25. It'll be here on the screen, or you can follow along. It says, when her time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. Homeboy got some hairy body. All right. After this, his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand. Brothers, they always fight. Yep. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. Bless his heart. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter and an outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob, mama's boy. Once when Jacob was cooking the stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. He said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stuff because I'm exhausted. Just sounds like a dude. That is why he also named Edom. Edom means red. Jacob replied, and here's Jacob. He's a little cunning guy. He says, first, sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, (laughs) I'm about to die. I don't think he's about to die, really. So what is this birthright good to me? Jacob uh, Jacob said, swear to me first. 
So he swore to Jacob, sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up and went away and despised his birthright. He despised his birthright. When I think of this, we see Esau's problem is that he can't control his stomach. Esau's problem here is that his stomach had become a god to him. When his stomach speaks, he obeys. Even if it meant giving up something of eternal, immense value. He gave up his eternal birthright for a bowl of lentil soup. Have you ever had lentil stew? It is disgusting. He gave up his birthright for lentil stew. The book of Hebrews tells us about Esau. It says this, and make sure that there is not any immoral or irreverent persons like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for one meal. When you see that word immoral right here, that comes from the original language. There's a word that means pornos, which could mean sexual. This word right here, irreverent, means that he is godless. That's a pretty powerful verse talking about somebody's character just because they became hungry. When you see this passage of scripture, you have to understand that Esau is controlled by his appetite. Like Esau, his hunger, it drives him. His hunger motivates him. His hunger changes who he is. Let me show you a picture of a sweet, beautiful, innocent little baby. This is my daughter, Car uh, yeah, Caroline Jane. I have to put names on the pictures because I can't remember who they are. Um, this is my sixth baby, our cute little redheaded with blue hair. We love her to death. She's just an angel. What'd I say? I said redheaded with blue hair, right? Is that what I said? She's red hair, blue eyes. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm hungry. Um, <laughs> Caroline Jane here, she's a sweet baby. I love her to death. She's our last one. Amen. And um, when I think of the baby, it doesn't matter, though, what time of the night it is. It doesn't matter where we're at. It doesn't matter what's going on. When Belly starts speaking, she lets everybody know it. She turns into a savage that desperately needs Jesus in that moment. She is screaming at the top of her lungs, and she has a scream like none of my five other kids have. There's something about this little one. I call it her Comanche war yell. She just screams. I'm like, how does that sound come out of a baby that's three months old, two months old? How does that happen? But Lord Belly is speaking, and she is obeying. When I think of Esau... There's a word that comes to mind that translated in the New Testament can be translated lust, but it has nothing to do with sex. It's this word right here, empathomia. Now, this ain't a word that we're going to walk around and talk about tonight. You're going to be at lunch and be like, empathomia. It's not a word we use a lot, but it's an important word for this context. It means a craving for something, a desire, a yearning, a demand that you have to have it. We empathomia things a lot. It's simply saying, I have to have this because without it, my life will not be okay. I might as well be dead. Esau empothomia the lentil stew. Without that, he said, I'm going to die. When you think of this, even the thought of the satisfaction of the pleasure that you're lusting after, that you're empothomia-ing after, even if that thing brings you pain. Empothomia is anything that takes weight in your life that God is supposed to occupy. Food, for this context, is a great example of that because God intended for hunger to let us know that we need to eat, but it's not to be our determining factor for our behavior. Let's be straight up honest. Some of us get giddy and happy when we see food. I've been guilty of this in the past. 
I'll be sitting with somebody, eating, you know, having a nice meal with somebody, listening to them pour out their heart, telling me how they just lost their job, and I'm listening to them, but in my brain, I'm watching the door of the kitchen because the waitress is coming out with the the tray, and I'm like, oh, I just spotted the corn fritters. That's my food, you know. I'm listening, but I'm doing herkies in my brain because I'm excited, right? The food shows up, and you're listening. You're like, oh, the food's here. You act surprised even though you spotted it 200 feet away. You've been there. I'm the only one. Okay, so... Food makes us, it changes who we are. Food literally controls us. When Lord belly speaks, we overeat. When our Lord belly speaks, we eat the whole pizza. When Lord belly speaks, we react. And if we don't get that, because food has become the satisfaction thing in our life, it changes our behavior. We become irritable. We become something that we're not. Ladies, don't nudge your husband too hard in the side right now, please. Because food controls us. It, let me give you an example of what this might be. Check this video out. Marsha, what happened? Peter hit me in the nose with a football. I can't go to the desk like this. Well, I'm sure it was an accident, sweetheart. An eye for an eye. That's what Dad always says. Hmm. Never said that, honey. Shut up! Time to teach Peter a lesson. Marsha, eat a Snickers. Why? You get a little hostile when you're hungry. Better? Better. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Jan, this isn't about you. It never is. We change who we are when we're hungry. So let me, let me ask you a question. You ready for this? Is food the only thing that we do this with? Of course not. You heard the message last week. Uh, take sexual lust. We all desire it. It's good for us. God gave it. But when that desire becomes a controlling thing in our life, it becomes a craving You can't say no to porn, to erotic fantasies, for going too far with your girlfriend. There's an affair you can't walk away from, even though it is destroying your life. It's literally taking over your life. You feel like you don't have control over it. Empathomia. It's become a functional God to you. It's become a ruler in your life. It demands your attention. When I think of that, just like food, you crave it because it's what you do. Did you notice in Hebrews 12, the verse that we read a moment ago, it it talks about Esau and how it calls him immoral even though there's no mention of sexual immorality. You know why? Because his stomach works the same way his sexual lust does. Let me throw you another angle at, at this that you might not have thought about when you think about gluttony. And another angle is that when you turn to food for something that God alone is supposed to be, our comfort, our refuge, our source of how we deal with stress, one of the ways that you may struggle with the sin of gluttony is by an eating disorder. Now, an eating disorder is more than just how we look. We get that. It normally shows up because our image has become so important to us, how we look, How we look and how we feel, you think you can't be happy without the right body, so you starve your body to get to a certain weight, but on the flip side, food is a comfort to you. So when you get depressed, you binge and then you purge. You binge and then you purge. It's a vicious cycle that comes from, if I don't look this way, I can't be happy. Just the thought of being a certain weight, because empathomia, if I'm not this weight, I'm not going to be happy in life. Your self-worth and identity does not come from what God says about you, but rather how you look. That's why the Bible says you put the improper weight on self-image. 
You're giving glory to self rather than God. That's why the Bible says, so whether you drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. When you think of this, you have to understand that when you see someone who is running around all the time, counting calories, fat content for everything, never able to enjoy a meal, you're dealing with somebody who deals with the sin of gluttony because idolatry, their image has become an idol in their life. The perfect looking body is the key to happiness, therefore I will obsess about having the perfect looking body. It's become an idol that will only let you down. That's why Jesus said, don't obsess about food that can kill the body or make the body healthy. Instead, focus on the one who can bring you happiness. He's saying, put the proper perspective on God and not so much on your body. Let me get really real with you here. As a pastor, one of the things that I am absolutely just sick of seeing is that we don't place the proper attitude on our soul, on our heart. And there are many that when they lose weight because their image is on the outer appearance, they get that new lease on life. There is that newness that they feel and that's when affairs happen. That's when they go off and they do things that they never would have before because it's not just the outer image. There's an issue with the heart. Man looks at the outer, but God looks at the heart. And this can go down so many roads. That's why some say you only have to wear a suit and tie when you go to church, even though your life is not backing up what you're selling at church because man looks at the outer. It's the approval of man. When you think of this, we're putting the wrong perspective on the issue at hand and not with God. Paul said it like this in 1 Timothy 4.8, the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. He says in 1 Peter, live, uh, dear friends, I urge you as strangers, as temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. Look at this one. He says, live no longer for the passions of the flesh, but instead live according to the will of God. Esau, his God was his stomach. That's what he lived for. I don't want you to miss this. What is the thing you're empathomia after? That you feel you have to have sex, power, control, money. What is it in your life that is taking the place that God is alone is supposed to? We see, on the other hand of Esau, someone who had a proper relationship with food, we see Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, I'm not going to take the time to read it, but Jesus is led up into the wilderness by the Spirit. For 40 days and 40 nights, he does not eat or drink. And as he goes, he does not eat the food. Satan comes to him. The tempter comes to him and says, turn this bread, uh, turn this stone into bread and you will be suffice. But he doesn't. You know why? Because he has a proper relationship with God. Jesus is the total opposite of Esau. 40 days without food, and he still realizes that God is the most important thing to me, fulfilling me than food is. Esau went a few hours without food, and he sells his eternal birthright. Jesus is not saying don't eat to live. He's not saying that, but what he's saying is that there's a quality of life that does not come from the satisfaction of desire, hunger, sex, control, power, real life comes from the will of God and knowing God. Real life comes from that. So Jesus knew that God was better, so he turned away from the desire, even when legitimate hunger was gnawing at his backbone. 
Let me tell you how to apply that. We find it in John 6, 26. This is how Jesus answered. I assure you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Jesus had just fed people, 5,000 people with some fishes and loaves. He's a walking golden corral. And now they're all wanting to follow him. Look what he says, though. He said, go to the next one. He says, don't work for food that perishes, but for food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has sent his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. This is how Jesus replied. This is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. So when you see this, you have to understand, how do we get that soul bread? How do we get that bread that's not going to leave us hungry again? You have to believe the gospel. You have to get to the place where the gospel is where you learn that God is enough. That's why every single week, Matt always brings us back to the same place. Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. The gospel is where we find our peace, our joy, our satisfaction. The only way to overcome a craving in life is to get your life back to God. Maybe the only way is to get your life to God. Some of you have never said yes to him, and so the satisfaction of him has never taken place in life. Thomas Chalmers said this in, in The Power of a New Affection. He said, the only way to resell the soul away from the power of a beautiful object is to give the soul something more beautiful to look at. In other words, if you want to move away from slavery to food, you have to take your joy from food to God. I like this quote by John Donne. It says, unless you imprison me, God, I will be imprisoned by something else. So how do you get that way? You have to believe what the gospel says about you. How do you get the eternal soul bread that never leaves? You've got to believe what the gospel says about you. There's two things that I tell myself every morning when I wake up. You can see it right there in your bulletin. One, nothing I can do today would make him love me any more. There's nothing that I can do. I can't do anything that's going to change that. He so loves me. He loves me. He knows where I'm at. He knows what's going on in life. My son, Caden, came in a few weeks ago. He gave his life to Jesus a couple months ago, and he was down in Rockbridge Kids. And let me, let me give a plug for Rockbridge Kids. They are teaching our kids some incredible stuff. Our volunteers that are down there, they love our kids. And if your kid has never experienced Rockbridge Kids, I would highly recommend you put them in down there in Rockbridge Kids. It's age-appropriate content that they're learning about Jesus. They're memorizing Bible verses. They give you stuff to help with your kids during the week, so it's not just teaching them a lesson. They give you helps to be parents and to raise your kids. My son comes home a couple weeks ago, and he had memorized John 3.16. And I was like, oh, good, you picked an easy one to memorize. And he goes, hey, Dad, for God so loved, um, um, and I went, hey, hey, just stop right there. You didn't get the rest of the verse. We'll figure that out. But do you realize what you just said? God just doesn't kind of love you or merely love you. God so loves you. And the gospel is this, that he loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to step into history, to live a perfect life, to die a criminal's death, to be buried, and to rise again so we could have a relationship with him. That's the gospel. And the gospel is that nothing I could do today would make him love me anymore. And here's the second thing. There's nothing that I need besides that. There's nothing that I need besides that. The first one deals with works. I've got to be something for people to love me. That's religion. 
The second thing deals with idolatry. I need something besides God to make me happy. I need food. I need sex. I need power. I need money. Something besides God to make me happy. We have to believe the gospel. The gospel is where we find our peace and our joy. So what are some action steps that you can take away from today? Some things that you can leave here with what we talked about and apply to your life. One, you have to ask yourself this question. Who is a God in my life? Is it food or is it Jesus? Who's a God in my life? Who calls the shots? My stomach urges when Lord belly speaks, do I obey or is it God? Would your life best be described by saying thy will be done or my will be done? Who is the source for approval, for comfort, for rest, and for peace? Obviously, you got to think broader than just food. You got to think broader than that. Is it my urge for porn, for power, for control? Hey, is it my urge to get married? You obsess about that. It's a controlling desire that you are obsessed about. It is consuming your life. Is it something that has promised you happiness other than God? Ask yourself this, what am I giving up for this body urge? What is taking the place of God right now? Esau, he ate, he got up and went about his business and didn't care. He didn't stop to consider what he was giving up because his belly was speaking to him. He despised his birthright. When I think of this story, there's two things that I have to think of. Is my, in my eating this way, am I giving up my health? In eating this way, am I giving up my health? Hey, let's be honest, guys. When you get in the car and you're heading home and you swing through Burger King and grab a Whopper or Taco Bell and get a taco and you throw the trash away before you get home so she doesn't know you ate that, that's probably guilty of not eating to where you're not giving up your health. Am I alone in that one, too, in the past? Okay. My wife's here. Sorry, babe. I did that. Um, how about this one? In eating this way, what am I trading so that my stomach will be happy? Hey, lastly, and this isn't a new conviction here, and I'm not being self-righteous. I think it's because I'm 35 and my body's starting to fall apart. I got a metabolism slower than Congress. Um, guys, you got to start considering, and I just want to talk to the men, Rockbridge men, listen. We got to start considering what we're doing to ourselves, uh, what we're eating. Uh, some of you, you need to go to the doctor. And you're like, well, if it ain't broke, boy, don't fix it. Well, you don't know if it's broke because you ain't been to the doctor yet, all right? Maybe you need to go get that blood pressure checked out, that cholesterol level. Maybe you just need to make an appointment with the doctor, and that's your action step from today, and start getting healthy. God gave us these bodies to take care of, and we are bad stewards of what he has given us at times. And I think another thing, just to be really honest with you, is the world looks at the church, and we're a horrible witness with how we are living our lives. We're horrible witnesses with how we're living our lives. What if in a way that we started changing how we eat in order to be our witness, to let our witness continue to point out that he is the most important thing in our life? I think another thing is that we're cheating on our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids. We're cheating on the ministry by how we eat. God can use you so much longer if you die at 95 than you do at 55. But we're so selfish by what we put into our bodies. How can we live sent in that way? Hey, I'm not self-righteous in this. Trust me, I would eat a blooming onion and order another one before that one was finished just a few months ago. But I started realizing that this sin of gluttony is a horizontal sin that has a very vertical dimension. 
you got to realize that it's a sin, a vice, a habit in your life. And food has taken the place that God alone is supposed to occupy. So how do we win the battle with food? Let me give you some action steps and we'll be done. One, you treat gluttony as the sin that it is. You got to treat gluttony as the sin that it is. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some of you need to find some accountability that's confessing, hey, I struggle with this sin and I need some help to get through this. Second thing, be on guard against satanic attack, which may be the result of perpetually succumbing to gluttony. The Bible says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Understand, this is a spiritual issue. It's not just, I love food and I can't push back from the table. He knows where you like it. He's going to continually bring that up in you and you're going to succumb to that. Third, hey, go ahead and be afraid of fat. Go ahead and be afraid of fat. Extra fat in our bodies is a quiet killer, causes cancer, high blood pressure, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. Recognize it is slowly destroying you. And number four, this, number four, the only foolproof way to lose weight is to stop eating so much. That's it. I'm sorry, but there's just not a shake or a pill that you can take and eat whatever you want. That just doesn't work. I'm going to get an email. Um. Hey, we're bombarded with advertisements for quick weight loss diets, and let's be honest, they don't work. You've not changed your eating habits enough to maintain your weight. About three years ago, I got on one of those fads, and I dropped about 50 pounds, but as soon as that was done, because I hadn't changed the way that I was eating, I gained that 50 plus 20 back. When you're putting something that is replacing God in your life, you're just going to take it, but you're not going to change who you are. It's a heart issue that has to look at, God, what do you want to do in my life? Nothing worked for me until I started treating gluttony as the sin that it was, and I began to recognize that I could choose to eat smaller portions if I wanted to. That's how God is going to bless. Drink water. Stay away from things that I know are destroying the body. Galatians 5.22 says, The ability to say no to anything in excess is self-control. Is one of the fruits of the Spirit commanded, not suggested, com- uh, commanded. It, it says common. It doesn't even say commanded. I don't know the Bible. Common to all believers. He says, hey, don't just say I like pizza and I, that's why I got to eat it. Understand that you can say no to it. What are some, here, here's the two last blanks I want you to fill in. You ready? Do my eating habits glorify God? Do my eating habits glorify God? And lastly, do my exercise habits glorify God? If someone very close to you were to tell us what your functional God was, is it the desire of your stomach or God? Can you bring those under submission right now? Here's some next steps for you and I'm done. For those of you who have said yes to Jesus, you have given him the steering wheel of life. He controls you. He leads you. He guides you. You need to find some accountability. At all of our campuses, in the seat back pocket in front of you, there is a next step card. You can write down on that next step card, I need accountability. I need help in this area of my life. Drop that in the offering basket here in a few minutes. A campus pastor, one of our leaders, they'll get in touch with you and say, hey, how can we help you find some accountability? Some of you need to join a small group because that's where community happens. I love my small group. Man, we're, we're walking, all of us in the same walk of life together. We're holding each other accountable. Maybe you need to get connected into a small group. You can check the box there and do that. Maybe, maybe your next step is to go tomorrow and join a gym. You're like, hey, I'm just here. I need to start somewhere. The first step is to start just by joining a gym. Don't get frustrated when you don't see results. 
but just start getting healthy. Put one foot in front of the other. And if you go to Planet Fitness, don't go on the first Monday or first Tuesday of the month because they have pizza and bagels. I think that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my life. And if you own Planet Fitness, I love you, but I think it's a stupid strategy. All right, anyhow, I have to walk by the pizza, and I'm like, I'm not going to eat you. I saw a lady eating a piece of pizza on the treadmill the other day. <laughs> Something's not right there. I don't know what it is, but I tried it, and I threw up. So, um, <laughs> Kidding. Some of you need to join a gym. Tell them I sent you. Hey, we need to get healthy. Find some accountability. Thirdly, maybe your next step is saying yes to Jesus. It's giving Jesus the steering wheel of your life and saying, God, I've never brought this under submission because I am out of control. I need you. I need to give you the steering wheel of my life. I need to believe the gospel for the first time today. If that's you, man, take that next step card. Check, became a follower of Jesus today. Drop that in the offering basket. We'll help you start taking some next steps. I can think of no better testimony than to say, I, got, I gave my life to Jesus the day we talked about gluttony. That's an awesome testimony right there. He knows you. He loves you. Hey, in what area does your body call you away from living according to the will of God? And can you bring that under submission right now with the help of the Holy Spirit? Rockbridge, I love you. God has blessed our church. We are healthy and growing. I would love for us to be healthy as God is allowing us and giving us platforms to make him famous that the world could look at our church and say, hey, there's something different there. They are glorifying God with how they eat. God can help you. You take the steps, and he will free you from the sin of gluttony. Let's pray today, and we'll close. Father, we love you. God, thank you that you know us. You love us in spite of the things that we have put in place of you in our lives. Father, I pray today for the one that struggles like I have with the sin of gluttony, where food has become a functional God in our life, that today will be a new day. We will turn over a new leaf. We will start walking in a new direction. And some of us literally start walking for the first time and glorify you with our exercising habits. God, that we will glorify you with the way that we eat. God, that we will be an example to the world around us, that Christians aren't just people that call people out on their sin for everything and gluttony is running rampant, but God, that we will live lives in such a way that honor and glorify you by what we say and what we eat, and how we live life. God, I thank you for your church, and I pray that we will put this under submission to you today. For the one that's in this room, for the one that's watching, that God, they will give you the steering wheel of their life, that you take complete control as they surrender their will, their appetite, their belly to you. God, thank you for uh, this lesson that we have that we can apply to our lives, and I pray that you We'll do what only you can do as we honor and glorify you in the strong name of King Jesus, we pray. Amen.